I'm Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. In this week's episode, I got to interview Patrick Banger. Patrick is a pragmatic, thoughtful, forward-thinking, fearless, innovative leader for the town of Gilbert. As a city manager, Patrick really has the responsibility for chartering the path forward for the community. He is someone who has focused his efforts around people. He is driven by serving the residents of his community and empowering his staff while making sure that they understand the importance of earning our trust as taxpayers and working every day to make sure that that trust is met. I can't wait to share Patrick's interview. So without further ado, let's talk to Patrick. Welcome, Patrick. I can't thank you enough for joining me. Thank you, Melissa. It's an honor to be here. So for the folks that don't know who you are and what you do, do you want to Explain a little bit about your role at the town of Gilbert and how that works into transportation. I'd be happy to. I'm Patrick Banger. I'm the town manager in Gilbert, Arizona. I've been here since August of 2011, so just coming up on 10 years. And it has been just an amazing experience and gone by in the blink of an eye. I am appointed by the mayor and the council and then everyone else in the organization, short of our town attorney who also reports to the council and our town clerk and our judge. They all report to me. And so my responsibility is to advise the council in areas of importance, such as transportation, on what our needs are, conduct whatever studies are necessary, to give them the information to make good decisions to ensure that we have a safe, effective, reliable transportation system in Gilbert. And that's something that's of critical importance because we are almost 270,000 people now, but we are still growing one of the faster growing cities in the state of Arizona. And so the burden placed on our system just continues to grow every year. With regard to growth in the town of Gilbert, you just had a big town council vote. Was it just this week or just this last week? Just last week, yes. So can you explain what that was about? Yeah, that has been something that we have been doing studies and planning for for probably the better part of five years now to understand the needs that we have by way of transportation infrastructure in Gilbert and areas of need such as reconstructing intersections that were designed decades ago and and weren't really designed to handle volume of traffic that's coming through them today. Unimproved roads, especially in the southern part of our city, where we're still seeing a lot of the new growth that need to be improved, as well as investments in the new technology that's come along to help us transition into an intelligent traffic management system to better manage that traffic flow through our community community and the demands it's placing on the system. And so we originally had planned to bring it to the voters in 2018, and the council wanted us to look at and do some additional studies and make sure it was inclusive of all the needs that we felt we had and could identify. And then we were going to put it on the ballot in 2020 last fall and when the pandemic hit not knowing what the local economy was going to look like in November. And we had to notify the county in early June. 
we made the decision to push that off. And it's now really become time sensitive and critical because the last of our capital project dollars are being expended this year. And so to keep our capital projects program moving forward, that is the primary source of funding. And that's what will keep these transportation infrastructure related projects moving along. When you reference transportation infrastructure projects, you guys have this amazing booming downtown now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of traffic and literally all kinds of traffic, like volume wise, but also you've got bike, you've got ped, you've yeah. got car traffic, you've got through traffic, yeah. you've got two traffic. Yes. And don't you even have a freight line? Right through our community. Yes. So just in that one little pocket, there's so much that it seems like represents what you all are trying to do with the town of Gilbert, where you're looking at, it seems at least like a a holistic sort of quality of life when it comes to transportation. So investing in the bikeways and making it more pedestrian friendly and safety and things like that. Is that part of your plan as well? It absolutely is, Melissa. And I will tell you, Gilbert is not unlike many American cities, suburban communities that they were small agrarian based communities for the majority of their existence. Gilbert, last year, we forget because the pandemic, it was actually our hundred year anniversary since our incorporation. But the thing that we have endeavored to understand is, you know, in looking at the history of our community and our growth, we really trace it like many American cities back to post-World War II expansion when the automobile was affordable, when gasoline was cheap. A lot of that tied to the industrialization effort for the war and the American dollar was strong and people started to explode out of urban cores and take farming communities, agrarian-based communities, and turn them into suburban communities. And They were designed largely around the automobile because your place of employment was generally still in the urban core. So you had to drive from a Chandler, from a Gilbert into the core region, into Phoenix, where your employment was. And so we designed cities around the car and we were pretty good at that. We did a pretty good job of moving people along and creating those lanes for commuting to get from home to work and back. But we've now in hindsight learned that we also didn't plan for and didn't do as good of a job in creating safe options for transportation in all its forms, from cycling to walking to scooters and even skateboards and whatever else is coming around the corner. And I think we are in the same position, especially in our heritage district, where it's such a truly dense urban environment that we really need to maximize the movement of all forms of transportation and do that in a safe and effective manner. And that's a big part of what the dollars from this ballot issue will help us do and help us make investments in, especially in the areas of technology that have accelerated the pace of change in society like nothing else before it, and especially in transportation, which has been something that's been pretty static in my career over 30 years. The opportunities for advancement and for enhancements are just every year there's a new technology coming out. It's kind of challenging, I would imagine, being in a leadership role where you have to balance sort of the bleeding edge versus leading edge. And you don't want to be first to market with things as far as experimenting with technology. But you also don't want to have a plan that doesn't have the flexibility for you to accommodate technology as it's proven and could serve your community. Yes. You know, Melissa, you highlight an excellent point, and it's one that I think all of us are really trying to understand better. And, you know, through my career, 
I have always tried to maintain my focus on people because we're here to serve people. That's what government does. And and we do it in a lot of different ways, but it's people we're serving. And to start with people and work backwards from there on what their needs are, what their challenges are, what it is that would make their lives better. And with a lot of this technology, and we've all heard the saying, you know, shiny objects, and you can get distracted by shiny objects. And that, you know, that seems so cool. We should do that. But we're not even certain that that is a product that's ready for implementation or that is secure. When you think about a lot of this technology, it's really the data that technology is collecting and analyzing and, and through predictive analytics and real-time decision-making and automation. But we've got to protect that data and these people's personally identifiable information that it may collect. But don't get distracted by these shiny objects. Stay focused on what our biggest challenges and needs are by way of people, and then work backwards on what are solutions that we could potentially employ. And and I love everything that it purports to offer and the technology that's being developed. But my general preference is to be the fifth person in the pool, not the first person in the pool. And I appreciate cities that jump in first because we all learn so much from them. But I also try to be very fiscally responsible in how I go about my job. And I don't want to waste a dollar more than necessary to understand what we should do, what we should invest in and what we should deploy to bring about those benefits. And so start with the people and and work backward and understand what their biggest needs are. In doing that, in looking at our heritage district, and one of the challenges we've got is as we create more demand for what's been created down there, and we've done a really good job of creating demand. And so it's going to bring in more people and, and more cars and create more congestion. So how do we solve for that? And there's not opportunities in urban areas to add more lanes. It's just not possible because you've got zero lot line construction on, on a lot of the commercial activity. And so if you start to understand, well, what types of traffic and congestion do we have on roads and, you know, what kind of technology could help us with that? And so when you think about the various forms of traffic that may exist from delivery trucks to people coming to eat dinner or go to a play or service vehicle, some of that's even ours. So if we can use technology to better understand that, we can then create some rules around, okay, during peak times of traffic, we need to not have delivery trucks adding to that to deliver whatever it is the businesses need down there. Or we need to not have our own crews going through and doing various activities that they do in the district, whether it be exercising valves on water lines or filling potholes, but get our own traffic and clear out as much of the traffic and better manage that as possible. And that will create some additional capacity in that road. Another issue as we move towards more structured parking down there. And this is an area where the technology doesn't truly exist yet, but we've been talking to everybody we can to help push it or even help pilot it. But you think about a lot of the traffic in urban areas is people driving around looking for an available parking space. So Google Maps or Apple Maps told you how to get to our heritage district so you can go eat at Joe's Roll Barbecue. But now you need to find a parking space. And if it's a busy night, you could drive around for quite a while from garage to garage or surface lot to surface lot. And wouldn't it be great if Apple Maps, in addition to telling you how to get there, also showed you exactly where an available space was. So you go right to that space and park and you don't have to circulate around for 10 or 15 minutes and get frustrated as well as take capacity on that road. So start with people. What are our biggest challenges? Work backwards and try to think about, you know, what are the tools that are available to us or the technology that may be available to help solve for that? Because it's certainly every passing year, 
it gets more dizzying with the array of technology out there and, and being pitched to us. Well, it sounds like you're taking a, a very pragmatic approach that includes low or no cost options like changing your policies, you know, yeah. no deliveries. And during certain periods, we're going to do our maintenance activities on off peak periods and things like that. And it's preserving the experience as well. You know, yeah. people think, oh, we need to accommodate cars. But when you're there, you know, you want to walk to a little shop and maybe you're killing some time before your reservation, but yeah. do some shopping and you don't want to be inundated with exhaust and feel like you're unsafe walking around. Mm -hmm. And the more activity you can get on a pedestrian level, the more pragmatically, the more income you're generating for mm. the city and for those businesses that are depending on that foot traffic, yes. but also tax revenue, right? And you're making their experience more enjoyable. Melissa, I, I could not agree more. And, you know, I've always taken the approach. It's not about fiscal conservatism, it's fiscal responsibility. And to me, our job is to deliver the best possible service, the best possible product at the lowest possible cost, just like the private sector does every day. Because if you sell a pencil and I sell a pencil and our quality is the same, but you're doing it cheaper than me, it's not going to be long before I'm out of business because there's no perceived value in mine over yours and they're going to buy yours. And for us in making sure that if, if I can solve a problem and spend mo no money doing it, then I'm going to do that every single time. And those dollars that I save, getting back to your comments about that experience, as we create more centralized structured parking, and now you're going to have to walk from the parking location to wherever it is you're going, the theater, the restaurant, if I can make every aspect of that experience part of the experience and an enjoyable part through light, through music, through landscaping, through art, through other aspects that actually make, you know, not just the meal you just had or the play you just saw, but that entire walk, people are going to keep coming back. And if they keep coming back, my businesses are going to make more money and I'm going to have more revenues coming into the town to pay for necessary services like police and fire and everything else. It's really actually pretty exciting to me to hear people say that downtown Gilbert is kind of like Old Town Scottsdale, except it's nicer and it's closer. Yeah. It's just nestled right in there with all these communities. And uh -huh. that's it. I would imagine maybe another one of your challenges, because when I think of the town of Gilbert, I think nice family oriented, a great place to raise kids, mm -hmm. I think safe communities. Mm -hmm. And now you've got this, well, not only your investment in the heritage area, but there's some other areas that are also booming within Gilbert. Mm -hmm. And you've got this economic development effort where you're drawing in some major employers as well. Yeah. So that's a lot to balance as a town manager. There's a whole lot to balance. Unless, uh, you know, that's where getting back to. Um, boy, I think job number one for me is, is hiring the best people I possibly can and then supporting them so they can be successful in their jobs. Because we as an organization, I mentioned we're almost 270,000 residents now. That makes us somewhere in the mid 80s for a size of cities in, in the U.S. There's over 19,000 cities and towns by sheer size at almost 70,000 
273 square miles. We're bigger than Boston, Miami, Seattle, Minneapolis. We don't have those large, dense business districts, urban downtown, but it's a big geographic area that we're responsible for. And we don't just want one area like the Heritage District to be great in this great experience. And then everything else kind of <laughs> varying degrees of, of maybe mediocre. We want every part of this community to shine and, and be something of quality. And you've got to have as many hands as possible with the right focus and the right attitude and approach and skill set to make that possible. And you have an amazing team of people. Yeah. I have heard tons about your staff and I know a uh, I can't really say mutual friend because you might be his boss, but um, (laughs) my good friend recently joined you guys. So we were talking earlier before we started about Chris Bridges and um, how he has hit the ground running with you guys. He has. He has hit the ground running. Every day we are amazed by Chris and the knowledge he's brought to us and the skills he has in his area. And and if you think about an area of critical importance and tying it back to transportation, which is so critical to our own lives and every aspect of our own life, Chris is just one of the best hires we've done in in quite some time. He has been fantastic. We look forward to all the things that are going to come out of him. It's interesting. I I think What I've heard is that smart organizations hire for the right fit and then train for the technical skills, right? But with Chris, I feel like you guys, I've never worked for you, but Uh just from what I've heard, it seems like the right fit with regard to direct, straightforward, service oriented internal customer service, as well as external customer service. Yes. But, you know, you bring a guy in who has spent so much of his career working in a small community where there's a huge amount of diversity with regard to priorities and where he had to find a way to leverage every dollar he had for a $1 of cash for a $20 investment. And Uh what can I negotiate with? Uh Uh-huh. And then as the as to president, he brings this whole giant network of relationships where yes. he's like, all right, now yeah. I got something to play with. You yes. know? And, you know, sometimes the experiences that we don't expect are the ones that provide the most value to us as we go about our lives and, and our careers and, and exactly how you described Chris. So. When I got here, just after the recession, it was just starting to loosen its grip, but the municipal credit markets were not good. And there was a lot of municipal bankruptcies that was almost unheard of. And and Gilbert's finances were bad, but you know we had a lot of work to do to shore up reserve accounts and replacement accounts. And so we focused in on that because we're going to get the job done. And there's a lot of things that play into this, but you have to have money to spend. And you know when it comes to the money we do have and stretching those dollars, as much as possible. To me, one of the most important things you need to focus on and have is exceptional credit ratings. Because when we do have to go to the capital markets, I want to spend as much money as possible on bricks and mortar and as little on interest as possible. And so we focused in on that and we had no AAA ratings from any of the three major national agencies. And probably we are 40 credit rating upgrades later, we have AAA ratings across the board from all three agencies. And we're one of only 41 cities nationally to have AAA across the board, again, out of over 19,000 cities and towns. So now when we do have to go to the market, the last time we did, our interest rate was right at 2%, just barely over 2%, which is just unheard of. But now we can make sure that we've stretched our dollars. And then you bring someone in like Chris, who's already 
built an approach towards finding the right solutions, but stretching dollars even further. And now we can do even more with the money we have available. So we can address more needs or, or improve upon more aspects of quality of our life. And to Chris himself, and, and I mentioned his skills, and, and you mentioned the relationships, professional relationships that he brings with him. But we have some core values in our organization that we look for in employees and we evaluate our employees on an annualized basis. And we want them to be bold in their thinking and in their actions. We want them to be kind in their interactions to one another and to our citizens. We want them to be driven that if we have set a goal, stop at nothing to achieve that. And we want to be humble because at the end of the day, we are public servants. And I'm proud to be a public servant because I'm here to serve others. And and if you're not wired that way, you may grow frustrated in a career in public service because they're challenging jobs. And there are days, Melissa, when people have had a bad day and we talk about it and I encourage our staff, sometimes people don't treat us the way we deserve to be treated, but we can always treat them the way that people should be treated. And we may not understand what's going on in their lives. They may have just lost a job. They may have a loved one who's ill. There may be something going on in their life that they're having a really bad day. But if we understand how we can serve them, solve whatever it is that they're coming to us for and treat them with kindness and respect, I happen to believe that most people are are good people. And when they look back on that experience, they may realize that I didn't treat Chris Bridges the way he deserved to be treated that day, but he treated me with exceptional kindness. And they won't forget that. And when it comes time to vote on ballot issues or just their impression of their local government, it's going to be a good one because of how we treated them. And, and so for Chris, he just checked all four of those boxes for us, just, just like a hand right in a glove. I, I, we could spend the whole hour talking about Chris, but <laughs> I, I could spend, Melissa, I'll take the whole hour talking about each one of my employees that just do exceptional stuff. It's interesting you talk about, you know, your your stakeholder, your community members when they get worked up and how do you deal with that? And it seems like to me, a lot of times when people are really angry about things, it's because mm-hmm. there's some sort of underlying fear. And yeah. when you have a, a culture, an organization with like culture with those core values that you just described, that empowers people to get to the root of what the issue is, as opposed to either ignoring or not feeling like they're going to have the support for them to dig into, you know, let's have a challenging conversation. You you have to get to the core of that issue before you can really solve it. Mm -hmm. And I think most times when people are whipped up, it's because they're afraid of something. Yeah. Let's identify that and deal with that first. And then the rest is going to be easy. (laughs) I agree, Melissa. And we will have built a stronger bond and relationship as a result of it if we work our way through those things. Because you start building trust. I trust you with what I'm afraid of. You address that fear. And now I know I can come to you in the future. Yes. And we'll find a resolution. Melissa, trust is something that we talk a lot about as well, because I think if residents don't have trust in their local government, you're not going to have an effective local government. And one of the areas that coming with the advancements in technology and the new ways of delivering services that I've mentioned around data and protecting data, as well as people's expectations to privacy and data, it's an area that we've talked a lot about as we evaluate and assess and deploy smart technologies that are going to collect 
data, to analyze it, whether it's to manage pedestrian traffic flow better. But I, I think it's something that governments really need to take the time up front and set policies and create philosophies that are going to govern their use of data and be very transparent for our residents about what we're doing to maintain that trust. Because right now you've looked at what's happened with Facebook or with Google and people feeling very violated about the information that's been collected on them in ways that, you know, I'm sure none of us read the six point font and 12 pages of it before we click agree. And we just want our free Facebook page, you know, and we just assume, well, you're you're using cookies to see what kind of TV I may want to buy or what sweater may interest me. But they've realized now it's been monetized in many different ways, in ways they never understood nor would agree to. And there's that feeling of violation. And the difference is, whether it's Facebook or Google or whoever it may be, if you feel violated by that, you can just cancel your Facebook account. But if your government does that to you, that's a level of violation that feels much different. We're supposed to be the ones protecting their privacy, their interests. And I think that there's been some instances nationally where kind of rushing headlong into things with the best of intentions where that hasn't happened. And people are starting to ask questions about what is that camera collecting? you know, And for what purpose? Is it for traffic management? Or are you doing something else with that that I don't understand? Or are you collecting that data and selling it to someone who, who wants to understand something deeper about, you know, the, the demographic within our community. And so we have put some some philosophies in place around non-monetization of data that we're not going to sell the data we collect on our residents because that's not what we're here to do. We're, we're here to serve them and make their lives better and create more joy and prosperity in their lives, not collect data off them. And if we make 20 grand off it, well, I'd much rather have the trust of my residents than the 20 grand that I made selling some data I collected on something else. And I think it's really important to set that up front. But it's also really important to have a comprehensive understanding of all of that Mm -hmm. and then be able to articulate it both to your policymakers and to your residents. Yes. Because People come forward with all sorts of interesting propositions that on the surface may seem innocent and maybe may be being presented with the best of intentions at heart. But an example of that, and it's not like a put you on the spot question, but it's a, a curious what you would do with this type of a proposition. I recently heard of an organization that was working through a consulting firm to implement smart infrastructure. And the proposition for the municipality was the smart infrastructure is free to you if the data is given to them. You think, okay, well, what can they collect with cameras on traffic lights and on, you know, street poles and, and things like that? But it is a very big question. It is. It is, Melissa. And we've actually turned down some opportunities from vendors that that had some products that were really intriguing to us. And I think the kind of data we could have gleaned and, and understood better had value. But the way they'd structure is, well, we own the data and it's ours and we have the right to monetize it or sell it. And, and we just weren't comfortable with that. And we tried the best we could that, look, here's the terms that are acceptable to us. It's our data. And you are not going, you know, there's a, a 
a term anonymity at, at the source. And to us, that should always be, you know, the standard that we drive for, because I don't need to know who's driving that Chevy Suburban at five o'clock through my downtown. I just want to know how many cars are driving through my downtown at five o'clock so I can understand traffic flows and congestions and whether it's a delivery vehicle or a family of four going to a play at Hale Theater. And we have to keep pushing and, and demanding that technology go in that direction because then we don't ever have to worry about a data leak or a data breach or someone hacking into a camera and pulling out all that video data to where they could identify drivers individually or license plates. If I never collect it, I don't ever have to worry about a data breach itself because if you did breach it, all you're going to get is some meaningless data that you probably don't care about. And I know there's a lot of efforts and strides. LIDAR, I think, is something that holds tremendous potential to help us in in areas like that. Absolutely. Sort of connected to that. I know one of the areas for the town that is a high priority area is the economic development. Yeah. So can you... Tell me a little bit about that, because I know you're drawing some pretty significant employers. You're going to be Uh having some booming employment centers, some of those related to technology, some of those related to this shift in model of how we're actually working. It's Mm -hmm. all very exciting. Yeah, it it really is. So, Melissa, I could geek out with you for three hours. Probably good that you've got an hour time limit on it. It is. So, you know, we have a focus in Gilbert in regards to to help our elected officials and staff know where we should be expending our energy and our time and our efforts. And it's in three areas. One is creating a strong economy. And I always say this is the first among equals, because if people don't have jobs and wages at those jobs that they can not only survive on, but thrive on, then they don't have what they need to take care of families and keep a roof over the head or fund through services and purchases, our our primary revenue stream is through sales tax. So the more they eat out, the more I can pay police and firemen to keep them safe and serve them. And if they don't have what they need to thrive, then we won't have what we need to deliver services. So I've always felt like there's nothing more important than what we can do to create a strong economy. And then next is prosperous community. And there's areas within that that are in our area of control or services we offer, like police and fire and parks and rec, but it also is areas like K through 12 schools and higher education and hospitals and nonprofits and neighborhood associations, all of those things that we need as individuals to be prosperous as well. And then lastly is the environment and the natural environment, safe water, clean air, clean land, and safe and reliable infrastructure, built infrastructure. And so our focus on jobs is around our areas of strength. When I first got here and I interviewed for the position, at the time, they were talking about how they wanted to become a biomed hub in the nation and in the region, biomed employers. And and there's a great industry. It's certainly an industry of the future. Those are great wages. But when I looked at and and analyzed Gilbert and and what we had, I, I told them, That I don't think that's possible because we do not have a base of biomed workers in our demographics in in the region. We've certainly got some, but we don't have enough to make it possible for a Pfizer to relocate a pharmaceutical research facility 
to our region, maybe a small one, but we're not Boston. We're not San Diego. We don't have that base of employees to draw from workforce demographic. What we do have is incredible depth in the STEM fields and with Intel and with Boeing and with Northrop Grumman. We have an amazing STEM-based workforce. And that's what we should focus on to build upon that. Because when companies like Deloitte that just moved their U.S. technology delivery center to Gilbert, Arizona two years ago, and they're going to employ 2,500 people in that space. They're not moving 2,500 people with them. They are moving some key executives and leaders with them, and they are going to hire those individuals from our region. And some people will relocate for those jobs. But if we didn't have that workforce demographic to draw from, it wouldn't be possible for Deloitte to bring that to our community. Northrop Grumman just announced, uh, I think it's just under about 400,000 square feet in total expansion to their satellite assembly and engineering facility here in Gilbert. Tremendous employer, tremendous jobs. So we have, I think we've done pretty well over the last decade in bringing more employment into Gilbert. And we continue to stay focused on that and build upon the workforce we have and the success we have to build upon. That was pretty bold to come into the town and interview with them and say, you know, that's a great plan, but here's why it won't work. So where did you come from? (laughs) (laughs) Don't learn things through the career that, you know what, if you lead people on, we can do this when you probably have a really good gut feeling that we can. It's best to just say up front. I don't think we could do that. I'm up for any challenge, but I don't think, I think that's a mountain too high to climb. It's a manage expectations from the beginning, yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> I told my wife on our first dates, if you manage your expectations around me, this could go somewhere. <laughs> Seriously, though, you you mentioned having a a 30 year career and and you've spent the last 10 building up and helping to transform Gilbert. What did you do before you came to Gilbert? So to give you kind of a high level. So right out of college, I uh, had an idea that I wanted to be an attorney, but I, I couldn't afford to go right into law school. So I took a deferment on law school and I was just looking for a job to save up some money. And I got hired by a small city in St. Louis, a lot like Gilbert, a former agrarian town, poised to go through an incredible growth spurt. And they hired me to be their court administrator. And it was a blessing because the more I worked around the average attorney, the less (laughs) I kind of fell out of love. (laughs) But um, municipal government really that bug bit me hard and I just loved it. And so I shifted focus and went and got a master's degree and and just worked very hard and worked my way all the way up to become the city manager of that community and loved it. And then one day, a large construction company that's based out of St. Louis, but national in scope that was doing a lot of work in town. And I got to know him real well. Asked me if I ever thought about getting out of the public sector and working in construction. And I said, nope, I I never have, to be honest with you. But over a period of about six months, they just made me an offer that I thought would be I'd be crazy to refuse. And I was younger and, you know, money, you're, you're still focused on. I got college tuitions to pay for. I got retirement to save for. And so I made the jump. And I'm glad that I did. Even to this day, it was a wonderful company. I learned so much from them. They had a very almost 5,000 employees, but a very family-based feel to it where we're all working together. We're all supporting one another. And I learned so much. And from there, I was there three years. And then uh, again, over lunch one day, some family friends that were a second-generation custom home builder 
asked me if I ever thought about being a custom home builder. I was like, once again, I, that has never crossed my mind. But they were a wonderful family with an amazing reputation. And the second generation owner didn't have any kids of her own. And she didn't want to see the family company just kind of go away. And, and so probably about six months, she finally put an offer in front of me. I thought, gosh, how lucky am I that this company that's been around for 40 years and has this amazing reputation. They build these beautiful, unique houses and they want to bring me in and they want to teach me everything and, and have me take over one day. So I did that. And then on the side, I also um, did some consulting work at, at the request of some people. And if you do something well, then your phone rings more and more. And before you knew it, I'm just working around the clock. And it was all very valuable lessons. I mentioned I was on the other side of the table this time from cities submitting yeah. plans and waiting for comments to come back and going through the processes. And I got to see how sometimes even with the best of intentions, I didn't have a very good experience and, and I was frustrated by the experience. And I think sometimes we can be blind to that, not having been on both sides of the table. And so I don't think it was a midlife crisis, but I did feel like I woke up one day and it's like, gosh, do I really love what I'm doing? Because the recession had hit then and home building had slowed down. The, the high-end custom market didn't get hit as hard as the regular market, but it slowed down. But I had the other consulting practice that was keeping me really busy. But I just felt like I was working for a paycheck, Melissa. When I looked back on my career and I thought of all the things I had the opportunity to do, that jobs in municipal government are rewarding in ways that a paycheck itself is not. If we do our jobs right and we're passionate about it, we make people's lives better and we make communities better place to live. And it's so enriching. And I realized how much I was missing that as part of my life. And so that's when I decided to get out of home building, to wind down the consulting stuff, and to look for a great opportunity to lead a city again. And I landed in Gilbert and it's been 10 years this August and I couldn't feel luckier to be here. I could not agree with you more. I know so many people who have only ever been in the public sector or only ever been in the private sector. And it's so easy to say government this and government that, you know, or it's so easy to say, oh, it's big business and it's just people yeah. wanting to line their pockets. And, yeah. you know, it's like you really need to understand, you know, when you're in government, there's a lot of additional constraints that the average person, the layperson, has no concept of. Oh. And then when you're in the private sector, your pass fail could mean that somebody isn't able to pay their mortgage anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of pressure on a business owner, I don't care if you're a huge company or a small one. Absolutely. You know, you, you bring up a point. So when I was at that large construction company, we talked about that all the time. We're having a great week and business is coming in the door and things are going well. But if we let up for one second and don't push it every single week and do the best we can, next week may look much different or next month. And all of a sudden the work is not coming in the door. And then we're going to start losing people and losing our jobs. And you know, that is the reality of the private sector. There are no guarantees. If you don't work hard this week, there may be no money coming in the following week. They're there to make a profit. And it, it's there's nothing wrong with that at all. And if you're creating demand for what you have to offer, then you'll be in business for a long time as long as you also manage your money well. And in the public sector, you know, death and taxes is the saying. And, and I don't think it's just that cut and dry, but there is consistency 
if things are going well in your local economy that, you know, you don't have an option of not paying your, your property tax bill. Or if you don't, then there's going to be consequences to that. Or when you buy a, a TV at Best Buy, there's sales tax tied to that. And you don't have the option of not paying it. And so we do have more predictable revenue streams, or at least it's not going to turn off like a light bulb like it can in the private sector. But the one thing that I try to impress upon people is we still have to have the mentality that we need to earn people's business every single day. And we need to have that mentality of earning it, even though our revenue streams aren't as volatile. Well, you know, you mentioned having a more predictable revenue stream, but you also have the challenge of having to develop much, much longer financial plans. And you have to build in financial resiliency because things like last year when everything is booming in January and by the end of February, we're in a global pandemic, things like that happen, whether it's a natural disaster or or otherwise, as a steward of people's tax dollars, you have to be able to build in for that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means that you don't get to deliver a solution as quickly as someone might like. Yes, Melissa, absolutely. You know, it's one thing I think, again, and we try our best. We're not perfect. We make mistakes like anybody does. But one thing American cities have not done is plan for long-term sustainability. We kind of get focused in the moment and it's easy to do, especially in a high growth community where you got people clamoring for roads and park and now pickleball courts. Holy cow, are people crazy for pickleball? Um, but <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> there's all these things in the moment that put pressures on us, but we can't lose sight of the long term and what we need to be doing to plan for long-term sustainability and plan for cities. And as we age and the things that are going to change and happen, one of the things we've done in Gilbert, we've created the City of the Future initiative. And every week, it seems like we get another recognition for some aspect of our quality of life. It's second safest city in the nation or best place to raise a family or best place to find a job. And it's wonderful and and it feels great. And you can just see that our community appreciates it as well. But to think that would always be that way is, I think, a fool's errand. Things are going to happen and change. And we have to understand that to the extent it's possible and be able to predict what might happen. And so looking at the start of our growth, which really started in the maybe mid-80s and then exploded in the 90s and build out as projected in 2030, we'll top out somewhere north of 300,000 residents, depending on some land use decisions. We'll see just how big. But a lot of things are going to change when you no longer have greenfield land to develop and that investment, that new investment comes to a halt. And our average household size is three people, which means roughly a third of our population are kids. And those kids are going to graduate from high school one day and they're going to go on to jobs or the military or missionary work or employment and leave our community. And then we're going to see our population fall. And when our population falls, a business community that built up to serve 300,000 people is now maybe serving 250,000 people. So they're bringing in less money. And it doesn't matter if it's bricks and mortar or online with the sales tax that now is assessed online, we'll then see lower revenues coming to our government. And that's going to happen at a time when we have to make major reinvestments in infrastructure. As we did something called our long-range infrastructure plan 10 years ago when I first got here, we went through and we cataloged every single asset we have, all the way from as small as a street sign 
to a water plant and we put it in our GIS system, what it is, where it's located, when it was installed, what was the cost, what are the maintenance programs that we should be employing, and what's the projected lifespan to start getting a handle on when we'll have to make major reinvestments in infrastructure. And one of the things in doing that, we realized that from 1995 to 2005, a 10-year period of time, over 50% of the infrastructure that's in place today was put in in that 10-year window. And so if you look at road as a category within infrastructure, in Arizona, we can get 40 years out of an asphalt street if we maintain it properly. And so roughly in a 10-year window, 40 years from that point in time, we should anticipate major reinvestments being needed to keep our roads and our transportation systems effective so that it can then serve all the needs of this community. And that's going to run in the hundreds of millions, potentially billions of dollars. And unless we start planning for that and saving for that and understanding ways to prolong the life of those assets and to push that out as much as possible and mitigate that, it's coming at a time when we potentially have less money to work with to do it. And in addition to the potential drops in population, that same workforce demographic that allowed us to attract Deloitte and attract Northrop in their expansions is now going to start retiring. And so we're going to become a larger and larger community of retirees and retirees. And I hope to be there one day. will be on a fixed income. And so you're more careful with your dollar. And when we have to make major reinvestments and you're now on a fixed income, you're going to be more reticent to approve those kind of ballot issues. And so it becomes this vicious cycle and spiral downwards. And so you start seeing deferred maintenance decision being made and quality of infrastructure dropping and all the impacts that will have on your community. And pretty soon people start watching the value of their homes fall. And so they start, you know, it's a single biggest investment or nest egg many people have in their lives. And if they're watching it drops, like, holy cow, I'm going to sell before this drops anymore. And then it starts just a little wave of sell-offs. And you can see it across this country time and again with communities that developed earlier than Gilbert, you know, right after in the 1950s, because they were those first tier cities close to the urban cores that are in terrible states of distress, Melissa, and to such an extent with infrastructure and crime and issues with their schools and lack of employment opportunities. To figure out a way to climb out of that almost feels insurmountable. And so in Gilbert, our City of the Future initiatives trying to understand, okay, what do we do past build out to get people to continue to want to invest and reinvest in businesses and reinvest in homes and, you know, those retirees maybe transition into something that's smaller and more conducive to their lifestyle and open that big house up for that next young professional or young couple or young family to fuel the workforce that we need and continue to create demand for what we have to offer because that's really what it always comes down to creating demand for what you have to offer so how do we create demand in the future like we have today and we don't have all the answers but we'll challenge ourselves to try things test things evaluate things if it's not working pivot until we're successful it sounds like maybe you don't have all of the answers but you at least have the next step which yeah. is kind of brings us full circle to the beginning of our conversation with your bond initiative. Yeah. That's going to be moving forward now with the support of your council. And yes. can you talk about when that will occur and what folks can do to either support that or get more informed and how you're planning to spend that investment? 
Yes. So we've got information and we'll continue to add to it so that we can help voters make an educated and informed choice on that because we can't advocate. We can only inform, but it'll be on for this November and we have built and are going to continue to add. Here's some of the projects. Here's the areas of focus so that people can make an informed decision for themselves if that's the right thing to do to meet the needs this community has. And I believe that someone was saying that the net effect of passing this does not result in an increase of taxes. No. So our tax rate is 99 cents per $100 of assessed valuation. We don't have a primary property tax, just a secondary. And so if you look at primary and secondary together, we've got, I think, still the lowest property tax in the region, which I always say is for a community of our size that's still growing, you would expect it to be much higher, but we will be able to keep that rate at 99 cents per $100 with this. When you look at your tax bill, the state statutes statutes cap appreciation in value at no more than 5%. We're in Arizona, we receive a new appraisal every other year, and it can go up no more than 5% than the last year. So if your tax bill has gone up, that means your property is worth more. So that 99 cent rate is still there, but if your house that was worth 300,000 is now worth 325, your tax bill will be slightly higher because your house is now worth more. And so in looking at that and taking some projections of what that growth looks like for our community that continues to grow, continues to receive investments, we believe we'll be able to stay at that 99 cent rate. So that's exciting to hear from a public official that we want to do all these great things, but we're not going to have to raise taxes to do it. Yeah, we try very hard. <laughs> My employees tell me I'm cheap and the executive team that comes together and, and they, they work together to build a balanced budget and they call it the Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tomato, tomato, come on. <laughs> as we're at the top of the hour, is there anything that you would like to share with folks as we wrap up? Gosh, Melissa. For anybody, if you haven't been down here or it's been a while, come down to our Heritage District. You're going to be amazed by what you find or the new regional parks we've developed. If you haven't been down here, do yourself a favor and get down here. You will be absolutely amazed by this community and and what it has to offer. I definitely second that because it seems like every time I I am in Gilbert, I see something new that I want to go check out. Yeah, there's a lot more coming, a lot more coming. (laughs) Well, I just want to thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It was incredibly enlightening to hear about you and your background and how you guys are tackling things in one of our fastest growing communities and one of the jewels of the valley. Biased, admittedly, but I (laughs) I'm from Iowa originally. My dad was in the Navy. So every three years we moved and I lived outside of San Francisco, New Orleans, D.C., Chicago and St. Louis. And I've seen a lot. And I can say that I've never seen a place like Gilbert. It really is a special place. It absolutely is. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Melissa. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Moving Arizona. It was such a privilege to interview Patrick Banger. He is someone that really inspired me. It's not every day that you see a combination of characteristics like being so intelligent, but also pragmatic, innovative, thoughtful, forward thinking, and being focused on people 
and being a steward of the taxpayers. I think the town of Gilbert is very fortunate to have him as their town manager. And I'm excited to see how the community continues to develop under his leadership. So thanks for joining me. And until next time, let's get moving.